0: Reading this evening is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to 16, and you can find that on page 1162, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 2, page 1162. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow (coughs) led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful, as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you And you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting to you, to Titus, has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We're looking at um, the Apostle Paul, and he did not have an easy life. He had lots of hassle, lots of harassment, lots of hurt came his way, and uh, he's um, founded the church in Corinth. You can see where Corinth is, I think, and um, about fifty. Well, in fifty AD, and he lived there for eighteen months establishing this church. Now the first converts were Jews and their synagogues God-fearing Gentile fringe. But those Jews who resisted recognising Jesus as their Messiah um, meant that they kind of kicked out Paul and the uh, Jews and Gentile God-fearers who did recognise that uh, in Christ Christ the Messiah had come. But they only moved next door. They moved next door from the synagogue to the house of a Gentile convert called Titius Justus, and focused on reaching the non-Jewish community. Now, he's clearly, in this um, letter to Corinthians that we've been looking at on Sunday evenings, he's clearly invested a lot of himself in them over that period of 18 months. It was a small church, they got, he got to know them very well. They were dear to his heart. And in this respect, he was just like any parent, concerned for their offspring emerging out into the big wide world. Now, what had particularly grieved him was that after um, he had uh, settled replacement leaders with them, and he himself had moved on to take the gospel into new territory, false teachers arrived and entered the Corinthian Christian community. And they began to lead a number of these who were dear to him astray. Now the false teachers had come from Jerusalem. You see, whenever there's something really genuine, that's when uh, the devil's liable to try and counterfeit it. Not by something completely different, but subtly different enough that people will swallow it, but if you follow it, then you end up a million miles away from the real thing. And the first things these false teachers did was to try and sever the link between the Apostle Paul, their founder, and... Um, themselves, the, 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 the Corinthian Christians. Now you have to remember that the apostles are the foundation of the church. Their teaching, derived directly from Jesus, is the only way we can have certain access to Jesus and know the real Jesus. So they began to attack Paul and they tried to do it in three ways. First of all, to say that he wasn't a genuine Apostle, because he hadn't encountered Jesus when Jesus was alive, walking around, prior to his death and resurrection. He, as you remember in 1 Corinthians 15, described himself as one untimely born. He hadn't known Jesus in his earthly life. His claim to be an Apostle was that he had encountered the risen Christ, just like the other apostles, but he had done it a year or two later on the Damascus Road. And like them, he had been taught by the risen Christ. Subsequently, Paul checked out, as he'd be, be wise to do, what he had had revealed to him by Jesus with what Peter, James, and John, and the other apostles had learned from Jesus in his earthly life, and particularly in that six-week period between the resurrection and the ascension. He wanted to check out that they're singing from the same song sheet. Imagine the chaos if we had, if we did one day, we sort of dished out 100 different song sheets. That would be fun, wouldn't it, really? It would be chaos. So he's checking out that what he has had revealed to him wasn't just a sort of figment of his imagination, but was actually true. He's checked it out with the others. Secondly, um, because Paul had to rearrange his travel plans, um, which meant, of course, he wasn't going to Corinth as he'd planned, um, he changed his schedule from one long visit to two shorter visits. The false prophets seized on that as evidence that Paul didn't keep his word and so could not be trusted. Now, there could have been some traction in that if Paul had got a long track record of being unreliable, but he doesn't, he is a very reliable guy. I mean, I have a number of friends who are completely unreliable. If I kind of plan to meet them, I reckon there's a 50%, in some of their cases, 75% chance that come the actual appointment, they will bottle out, you know, the day before, or even the day before. That's because their lives are chaotic. Fortunately, I have many other friends who are reliable. Thirdly, they tried to undermine Paul um, with the um, insinuation that the collection that he was encouraging to be made by the churches in Greece to help out the church in Judea and Jerusalem, which was really having hard times with a famine and what have you, that actually Paul was using that to sort of pocket it Himself, So three attacks on Paul's authority as an apostle and his integrity as a Christian. Now these are what are termed, if you like, um, ad hominem arguments. That means to the person or to the man, literally in Latin. And they are where you attack the person rather than the person's uh, position. And that's what they did with Paul. I think that... uh, you should only attack the person in debate if the person is being hypocritical. So if, for example, you know there was a well-known case of uh, I think a shadow education secretary who argued against selective education uh, for the masses, the masses being 93% of uh, young students, and yet whilst at the same time, particularly as they're a labor minister, pay for their own son to go to a fee-paying selective school. That is hypocrisy. And what would normally be a private decision is of public relevance because of the position that they hold, and they deserve to be attacked on that because they're being hypocritical. So imagine yourself if you're in Paul's position. He has sweated blood for this new, young Christian community. He's uh, seen them launch out on their Christian journey. He's seen them through some tough times, as some were rejected from their synagogue and others as they left some pretty dodgy Gentile cults in Corinth, ostracised by their families. And he sees these people come along and try to kind of capture them and to shipwreck their Christian lives. He's heartbroken to hear that they've been seduced away from the apostolic truth which he had brought them. Now, Rob and I, um, this week, went away for a few days, not just together, with um, other vicars who had recently acquired a curate, and we went down to Salisbury. And we all have to do it. I did it with Nick before, so I'm quite familiar with it. We all have to do this Myers-Briggs personality test to understand who we are. And uh, the strengths and weaknesses of our own particular personality type, and uh, so that we know kind of how to understand one another better, etc. And um, you can see how easily or how difficult, difficult, difficult it is to work with certain personality types. So I hope Rob didn't uh, feel that he wanted to trade me in for one of the uh, other vicars there. I certainly was pleased that I had him. They, they do things like, once they know your scores before you do, they put you into groups. Sometimes it's like-minded group, and it's, a, it's great fun, because we're similar. Sometimes they deliberately put you with someone who is really gonna rub you up the wrong way. And if I wasn't restrained, I'd probably rub them up the wrong way. But I cannot cope with people who are inarticulate, indecisive, irrational, time-wasting. <laughs> and uninformed. (laughs) So, you might just be curious to know what we are. Well, I haven't got time to explain Myers-Briggs to you, but there are two personality types. Now, Rob is a protagonist. He is an ENFJ. Quote, a natural-born leader, full of passion and charisma. In fact, you know who he's actually like? He's like Sean... (laughs) Now, uh, 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 before, you may remember when he first came, we all thought he was slightly deluded when he was explaining that his previous job was as a kind of combination between an accountant and James Bond. Well, he's actually like Sean Connery in person, not the real James Bond. So, uh, you might be a little bit disappointed by that, but he's like, for example, Johnny Depp. Or if you turn to the Bible, King David. I just chose that episode from King David's life rather than some of the others. <laughs> now, if, um, <laughs> now, if you want to know what I am, then I'm the ESTJ, the executive, quote, embracing the values of honesty, dedication, and dignity. ESTJs are valued for their uh, clear advice and guidance, and they happily lead the way on difficult paths, taking pride in bringing people together. And so, they're like (laughs) Lord Sugar. Or I prefer, really, to think in terms of Billy Graham, or the Apostle Paul. So... I did select these. There are quite a few others that I could have selected, <laughs> which would not have been to my advantage, really. Now, some of us um, do like a bit of clarity, I really. I mean, oh, it's impossible to people to, I mean, oh. People who want to actually think words can mean anything He's tempted to say, do you think the sheep is the same as today? Okay, it's not a Merino one. Oh, well, it's hopeless, but um, anyway. Um, that person was lucky they didn't come across me as a selector or they wouldn't be ordained today. Anyway, so um, let me try and help a bit with a little timeline of events so that we can get clear in our heads how many letters are flying around here and how many visits are flying around. So a little timeline you might just, I'll, um, might strain a few eyes, but um, so in 50 AD, Uh, Paul moves from Macedonia to Corinth via Athens. It's all in Acts 17 and 18, if you wanted to read it. And he stayed with a Jewish couple, already Christians, called Aquila and Priscilla, who'd been expelled from Rome, like many Jews and Jewish Christians, eh, the year before. So the church met in Aquila and Priscilla's home. Well, the next stage of its growth was to go to the synagogue. Paul always had the uh, strategy of to the Jew first, so he went to the synagogue. He was, after all, a Jew, and he tried persuading them that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah that they were looking for. Silas and Timothy arrived in Corinth with good news from Macedonia, and eventually, even though some Jews embraced Jesus as a Messiah, others resisted, and because... uh, They didn't like the message, they kicked out the messengers. So the church, as I said earlier, merely moved next door to the home of Titius Justus, And they were joined by some of the leading members, actually, of that synagogue, Crispus, we read of in 1 Corinthians 1.14, and his colleague Sosthenes. Now, many of uh, those from Corinth were baptised, 1 Corinthians 1.14, And then the Jews harass Paul, and they try and bring a charge against him to the proconsular court. But the Roman official, Gallio, ruled that there was no charge to answer, because as far as he was concerned, religious differences between Jews and Christians did not come under his jurisdiction. In other words, Paul, from a Roman point of view, was not doing anything wrong. Then around the end of 51 AD, after Paul had been there 18 months, we read in Acts 18 that uh, he moved to Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila. However, he called in Apollos to lead this new Christian community, Acts 18, 25, and there were again new conversions. Other teachers followed, some from the Cephas, or the Peter party from uh, Jerusalem came, who were being people from a Jewish background, but sadly also some false teachers turned up from Jerusalem and they moved in. They blackened, as I've said, Paul's name. They impressed Peter, uh, people with their claims of having seen in the flesh the real Jesus in his lifetime, something, of course, Paul couldn't claim. They thought that would give them one up on him. From 1 Corinthians 3, we get the impression that they were um, sort of personality cult driven and then we discover also that they seem to have modified some of Paul's teaching so 1 Corinthians 15:12 we have the idea that they may well be peddling the notion of merely a spiritual and invisible resurrection of Jesus rather than a physical and visible one that would enable people to verify that he had, in fact, risen from there. They thought the spiritual and the invisible might be more palatable. Or on the morality front, they somehow enabled them to accommodate the idea that incest was compatible with being a Christian. So you can see how immediately what happens, that they deviate from the teaching of Christ and then they deviate from the morality of a Christian and they may well be called believers, but they were soon suing each other in the secular courts. Now, Paul loves these young Christians very dearly, and he loves the ones from this uh, messed-up pagan background who had tragically fallen under these false teachers. And he's been in agony while he's been waiting to hear how they would respond to what he later would, what is really termed a tearful or even a severe letter which was written by him to them in 56 AD a letter he didn't want to write but he had to write to call them back on track will they respond he wondered will they continue to be led astray in error or will they be brought back to the truth Will they return to the apostolic foundation? Now if you're a kind of Sherlock Holmes mentality, then you can sort of delve into some of the little details that you find in the New Testament. Try and piece together um, how many letters went between these two groups, the Corinthian Christians and the Apostle Paul, and how many times he visited because he never actually sort of writes it all out in a nice, neat little kind of um, uh, piece for us. But there are five pieces of correspondence, four letters from Paul to the Corinthians, one letter from them uh, to him. Unfortunately, we only have the contents of two of the letters which he sent them. But within it, you can work out that they must have sent him a letter for him to answer all the things he does answer in 1 Corinthians for example so if you try and focus on the purple bits you'll see kind of what the sequence is paul wrote a previous letter as it's referred to about them not receiving the false teachers who he calls in 1 Corinthians evil doing doers because false teaching if you take it on board, will ultimately wreck your life. That was written around about 54 AD. Then the Corinthians send a letter to Paul in early 55, and it's alluded to in 1 Corinthians, and it has a whole list of questions, and we can see that he answers questions on marriage, remarriage, mixed marriages, virgins. And he writes that letter to them, which is 1 Corinthians in early 55. And it seems likely that Paul visited Corinth from Ephesus sometime shortly after he'd sent the letter. And things hadn't improved, sadly, so he saw the need for that visit, which he describes as a painful visit. To quote one historian, the visit was neither protracted nor pleasant, nor could Paul feel satisfied with its outcome. He left promising to return to Corinthians 1.16. But to avoid another and uh, more painful scene, he postponed going to see them. He wanted to give them a chance so that they would read the letter in conjunction with presumably what he told them in person earlier, so that they might return to the apostolic or the orthodox understanding of the Christian faith. So he postponed the visit. In early 56 AD, he wrote this tearful letter to bring them to their senses. And then, fifthly and lastly, later in 56 AD, we have two Corinthians, uh, which was written when he'd heard from Titus that they had responded appropriately to his letter and to his appeal to them. And then he projects a third visit when he will turn up, and uh, whilst it might be painful for those uh, in the Christian community who don't recognise his authority, for all the others who have, it will be a delight, and the collection will be made, and will be taken to the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. So, the tearful letter, had the desired result in bringing most of the Christian community in Corinth back on track. Opposition to him did remain. There were these people who were false teachers who were called super-apostles, and they were dangerously influential for a time. They were a destructive alternative to the gospel. But the visit mentioned was paid at last, Acts twenty. Uh, in late 56 or early 57 and uh, the collection was taken. Paul wrote the letter to the Roman Christian community from Corinth and uh, it had a happy ending. The Corinthian affair was closed and Paul went on to Rome via Jerusalem. Well, time taken to get that clear just helps us as we rattle through the actual text, which is quite straightforward. So if you have before you, page 1162, we'll take a look at it together. So Paul's been, uh, Paul's, Paul has asked them to consider, you know, in their weighing up, whether they should go back to him or whether they should go with these false apostles. He's saying, look at the quality of my life. Look how it's been honourable. And how that apostolic message which I gave you, the message of salvation, did transform you. He'd urged them to uh, prepare for his next visit by doing this collection. They'd started the year previously and uh, having the troublemakers dealt with meant that they could continue to do it. He's pleased to hear that they have responded as he's hoped. And he now stresses just that they just as they've done the right thing, but their relationship with him is one that he wants to restore to how it had been, to the quality of that relationship. He says, 7 2 Make room for us in your hearts. He wanted love, not simply brotherly love or friendship, for which there are specific words in the language he used, but the kind of Christian love, agape, modelled by Christ. He wanted that degree. Then he writes, we've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've exploited no one, which implies that Paul had been accused by the false teachers of being unjust, destructive, and fraudulent, the very things which they, of course, themselves were guilty of. In 7 3, he still has a place in his heart for them and he wants them to have a place in their hearts for him. 7 4, like any parent, he has great confidence, great pride, and is greatly encouraged by them because they have turned out to be genuine believers. They have strayed, but they have returned. They are for him a breath of fresh air, a real tonic, great news as he goes through tough times elsewhere. The situation has been turned around. They, his spiritual children, are back on track. And then 7, 5, and 6, he reveals that when he and his team returned to Macedonia, they had no rest, harassed at every turn. They had external conflicts and internal fears. So news of the Corinthians' return was fantastic for him. And then he shares his experience. He says, but God. Those two words often crop up in the uh, epistles. And they are real turning point um, sentences. And here's one. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us. How? He says, by the coming of Titus. Was it just Titus turning up? No, It was not just his arrival, it was the news that Titus brought in response to Paul's tearful or severe letter when he brought news that they had responded as he hoped they would. And the Corinthians' response is said to comfort um, Titus. Now, comfort is one of those kind of cotton wool words in English. It's all about being fluffy and soft and the kind of padding in your favourite armchair, which you can kind of sink into and you feel all nicely snug, but the origins of the word in English are from the Latin confortis, which means literally "with strength." So the Christians, so the Corinthians, right response, demonstrating that they were genuine and not phony believers gave Titus a spiritual, strengthening boost. And Paul too, um, uh, when Titus told him in verse 7 of their longing for Paul, their deep sorrow and their ardent concern for him, for the grief they'd caused him by being so gullible to have been lured off Paul's apostolic foundation by these false teachers. This news of their return to the pathway really pleased him. His joy was greater than ever, he writes. And then in verses 8 and 9, they're all about what is sometimes referred to as tough love. He regrets writing to them, but he doesn't regret it. So what on earth does he mean by saying things which sound as if they're contradictory? Well, he regrets the situation that they were in and had arisen because he has to write to them, because they're going adrift. But he has got their best interests at heart. No one really likes having to tell those they love that they're heading in the wrong direction that they need to turn around. But Paul loved them so much he was prepared to risk their relationship, to save them from ruin. It's because he has that outlook and an attitude that he doesn't regret sending that tearful or severe letter because while they may have found it hard to receive when they first read it, The outcome was good. It was as he'd hoped. He's happy. Not because they were made sorrowful, but because their sorrow led to repentance. Verse 9, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Now why did God want them to become sorrowful? Verse 10, It's a really important verse and one which uh, all of us ought to make sure we fully understand. Godly sorrow, he writes, brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow brings death. Now we could amplify it to make it really kind of stand out clearly like this. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets, but worldly sorrow brings only remorse that leads to a bucket load of regrets. So godly sorrow leads to repentance, to salvation, no regrets. You're in heaven. Yep. The outcome means in retrospect, you don't mind going through the humbling and the humiliating process which has got you there. But worldly sorrow, which is merely remorse, which leads to death, and consequently an eternity of regrets. Now there's all the difference in the world between remorse and repentance. Remorse is being sorry to yourself, for the adverse consequences of your actions. Repentance is being sorry to God because ultimately all your wrong offends Him because it's something which does damage to what He intended. Going back to God, this is how C.S. Lewis defines repentance. It is simply a description of what going back to him is like. If you ask God to take you back without it, you are really asking him to let you back without going back. It cannot happen. Often you hear in Christian circles that God's love is unconditional, when what they really are trying to say, I hope, is that God's love is unmerited. We don't deserve it. But the benefit of God's unmerited love towards us, the benefits of God's unmerited love towards us are not unconditional. They are conditional upon repentance. Membership of the Christian community is inclusive. It's open to all. But as one bishop said, and rightly so, it is inclusive upon repentance. We come back to God on his terms, not our terms, we come back to God on his terms and not our terms. And then there are these godly outcomes in verse 11, they're listed, earnestness, eagerness, indignation, alarm, longing, concern, readiness to see justice done. And there may, verse 12, have been been a particular leader of these false prophets and teachers, And somebody there may have been particularly duped, but they aren't the primary reasons why Paul is writing this letter. It was because he wanted to test their loyalty and devotion to him as their apostle, through whom they had access to God through Christ, who Paul had met, been taught by, and whose knowledge he had passed on to them. The outcome meant that there was encouragement all round for Paul, for Titus, and for the Corinthians. And as I close, what is there to take away? Well, just two things, I think. If If you want love and harmony between Christians, if you want love and harmony between yourself and God, then it has to be on the acceptance of the foundation of the apostles of Christ the apostolic faith, the teaching of the apostles, of John, of Paul, of Peter, of James. They had received it from Christ himself. There's no other supposed version which other people, other than the apostles, could have dreamt up, or were still ourselves dreaming up. No, it is the apostolic faith, which is the foundation of the Christian faith. It is the only way of knowing what Christ is like. There isn't any other way. And the second vital thing to know, to take away, and vital in a literal sense, because vital is about life, and we're thinking here about eternal life, which we all want. The vital distinction between remorse and repentance. It is all too easy when we know that we've blown it, when we've done something wrong, to be full of regrets for doing so. But only because of the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment and the adverse consequences it brings. That's just worldly sorrow. That is remorse and it leads to death. Regret you don't make the right response. That's what you then have to live with. Regret that you've made the wrong call. You didn't take the chance to make the right call. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, is a recognition that God, as defined by the Apostles' teaching, has been wronged. In the language that Paul wrote, the word stresses the about turn in the language of the Old Testament, it is a word which carries the connotation of entering into comfort, into a with-strength relationship. John White, the psychiatrist, writes, that may seem strange to some people. How can it be comforting to look at our own shortcomings, even our own evil, in the face? Repentance, though, he says, is comforting, because of what happens afterwards. The prodigal son had only to admit what he had done, what he had become, and then was able to start his way home, home to where the perfect father is there with arms outstretched, ready to welcome him back into the family, into eternal life, into salvation. And you'll never regret taking that journey. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this lesson that it is so easy, even as professing Christians, to be lured away by subtle, uh, subtle uh, teachings and thoughts, and personalities, which will be to our ruin. We pray that you would keep us faithful to the teaching of the apostles, which is, of course, what is now the New Testament, that we would adhere to that and follow that, that it would fashion our thinking, it would fashion our behaviour, and give us assurance of eternal life with the Lord Jesus. Amen.